You're listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk songwriter Nicholas Edward Williams. Between the 17th and 19th centuries, African-American work songs began to develop in the oral tradition from person to person. Some of the songs that these enslaved or imprisoned individuals sang came from African heritage. Some were instigated by owners to raise the morale and keep their captives working in rhythm, and others were created to temporarily escape their circumstances. The most enduring of these songs are derived from adversity, using their voice to communicate emotions as a form of resistance. Since drums from their heritage were banned early on in this time period, they used their body and their work tools as instruments of rhythm. Through generations, these work songs passed down experiences of the enslaved to their slavery-free ancestors, to liberal white America, and on into the commercialized music industry. John Henry was a little boy. In the early 1870s, a large construction was underway connecting the coastal plains of Virginia to the Ohio River Valley. The result was a railroad that would carry many forms of goods, notably coal mined from the West Virginia mountains to the east. Thousands of workers were employed by the C&O Railway, a large percentage of which were migrating African Americans who were in search of jobs. They used shovels, wheelbarrows, mules, and black powder to move millions of tons of rock and dirt to prepare the ground. They used axe-like tools to cut and shape hundreds of trees into railroad ties, bridge timbers, and lumber for rail cars. The work required not only long days, intensive labor, and low pay, but also certain danger. On steep sections of mountain, over 800 men drilled the longest passage of the railway for the Great Bend Tunnel, starting in 1870. They dug 6,450 feet through layers of red shale, which would disintegrate when it was exposed to air. Therefore, rock falls into workers were common, and death was always a possibility. Work songs were the only way to endure these conditions on a day-to-day basis. Building a tunnel in the 1870s was an extremely slow and difficult process. One man would hold a drill, who was called a shaker, and one man swung a sledgehammer, called a steel driver. The goal was to make enough holes into the rock that were then filled with the explosive black powder and blown up so that they could remove it in small chunks. It took six of these teams, working 12-hour shifts, to make enough holes for one blast, which would move the tunnel forward by just 10 feet. According to legend, a larger-than-life African-American figure named John Henry had a reputation as the strongest, the fastest, and the most powerful steel driver in Appalachia. The story either depicts him as a freed slave working for pay, or a prisoner on a chain gang. To speed up the process, the railroad company eventually brought in a steam-powered drill that could do the job faster than any man. A contest of man against machine was staged, and John Henry was out to prove that he could drill a hole through the rock farther and faster than the machine could. With two 10-pound hammers, one in each hand, John Henry pounded until he drilled a 14-foot hole in the rock, and the machine was only able to drill nine feet, and John Henry was victorious though he died with a hammer in his hand as his heart gave up from the stress. John Henry, he left his 
Regardless of whether the story is true or not, John Henry has remained a mythical figure, still referred to today. As the railway stretched westward along the Greenbrier River, the legend of John Henry began a journey that would land the story in textbooks, poems, storybooks, plays, as well as hundreds of ballads and work songs. Also known as hammer songs, these were often created by African Americans and sung to the rhythmic pounding of the hammer or the axe. Famous examples of these have been tunes like Take This Hammer, Nine Pound Hammer, Spike Driver Blues, as well as plain old John Henry Blues. A sociologist named Guy B. Johnson, who studied black culture in the South and was a pioneer advocate for racial equality, investigated and published books on the legend of John Henry in the late 1920s. His research indicated that the earliest known written copy of the John Henry song was by a white man named W.T. Blankenship and published around 1900. Obviously, this version wasn't the original, and it's believed that he overheard this song during the Jim Crow era. Titled John Henry, Still Driving Boy, it contains 12 verses and suggests both early African-American musical influence and white plagiarism, likely by means of slavery. Another early version of the John Henry Ballad that Johnson collected came from a man who claimed that he first heard the song in 1909 while working on a crew that built a power plant in Birmingham, Alabama. That same year, it was mentioned in the Journal of American Folklore after being collected in Western North Carolina. And three years later, an even longer version was found tucked in the Kentucky mountains and published in the songbook A Syllabus of Kentucky Folk Songs in 1913. Songs about John Henry started to become popular in the early 20th century. And by 1915, many different versions were known all over the South. As word about the legend made its way into songbooks, it also spread throughout penitentiaries in the region, which was fertile ground for work songs. One man submitted a version that he'd learned while working on a chain gang near Jacksonville, Florida in 1920. Another was performed by a group of convicts at a penitentiary in Florida and recorded by John Lomax in 1939. Folk icon Leadbelly, who served time in both Texas and Louisiana, said in his 1940 recording of Take This Hammer, every time the men say, ha, the hammer falls, the hammer rings, and we swing, and we sing. Take this hammer, wah, and carry to the captain, wah, take this hammer, Another folklorist named Louis W. Chappelle wrote an even deeper dive on the story called John Henry, A Folklore Study, published in 1933. Chappelle's research was even more thorough than Johnson's, drawing on many contemporary newspapers, scientific journals, tunneling documents, detailed work logs in the rail system, as well as reports from his many informants. Still, both Johnson and Chappelle's work is considered by many as the primary resource for the song and the history behind the legend. John Henry is one of the only well-known African-American folklore heroes that exists today. Yet, its relevance in song has been adapted as a fuel for diverse cultural change, such as labor, union, and civil rights. Several versions of the song are held at the American Folklife Center, and it's been recorded by everyone from Lead Belly to Johnny Cash, 
from Burl Ives to Big Bill Brunzi, from Mississippi John Hurt to Woody Guthrie. There's a statue in John Henry's honor at the site of the Great Bend Tunnel in West Virginia, where his ghost is rumored to haunt those who pass through. Here's my rendition of the traditional song, John Henry Blues. Henry said to his captain, a man ain't nothing but a man. Before I let your steam drill beat me down, I'll die with that hammer in my hand, Lord, Lord. i die with that hammer in my hand. John Henry said to his shaker, now man, why don't you sing? I'm shaking 12 pounds from my hips on down. Hear that cold steel ring, Lord, Lord. Can't you hear that cold steel ring? John Henry went down to the railroad track with a 12 pound hammer by his side. And he went down the track, but he never came back. And he laid down his hammer and he died, Lord. Laid down his hammer and he died John Henry hammered in the mountain And the mountain was so high The last words I heard that poor boy say Give me a cool drink of water for I die, Lord, Lord Cool drink of water for I die Give me a cool drink of water for I die, Lord, Lord Cool drink of water for I die And we had a little woman And the dress that she wore was red The last words I heard that little girl said She going where John Henry fell dead, Lord, Lord Going where John Henry fell dead John Henry was a little baby boy And he held him in the palm of the hand Last words I know that poor boy said Gonna be a steel driving man, Lord, Lord Gonna be a steel driving man Gonna be a steel driving man, Lord, Lord Gonna be a steel driving man I was out this morning Around 1850, in northern Mississippi, one of the country's most prominent African-American musical families started their mark on history when the patriarch, Henderson Chapman, was born. A former slave-turned-sharecropper, Henderson was considered a musicianer, an entertainer on plantations well-known for their musical talents. Half Irish, half African-American, Henderson was fluent in fiddle, guitar, violin, banjo, mandolin, bass, and piano, and along with his wife, Eliza, who was half-white, half-Choctaw Indian, he passed that tradition on to his ten children. They rented farmland and raised crops at various locations south and west of Bolton, Mississippi, 
a town of just a few hundred people, 20 miles from Jackson, the state capital. Henderson also had four sons from a previous marriage, one of which has been documented as the father of the blues, none other than Charlie Patton. Around the time that World War I broke out, seven of Henderson's sons decided to form a string band called the Chapman Brothers. They performed at square dances and social events around town for both black and white audiences, led by Lonnie Chapman on the dancing fiddle. Other prominent members included our mentor on clarinet and fiddle, and Sam Chapman on backing fiddle, as well as a neighbor named Walter Vinson, who excelled at guitar and had a unique voice. The group took a music for all occasions approach, largely influenced by being exposed to different forms of blues, old time, and early country music throughout Mississippi. During this era, black musicians and string bands in the north part of the state were more eclectic in their musical taste, whereas black musicians in the Delta region focused on the blues, especially the Delta blues. The musical Chapman family performed and recorded under various names with different string band lineups, such as the Jackson Blue Boys, Chapman's Foot Stompers, the Mississippi Mud Steppers, in addition to the Chapman Brothers. These different groups lasted until around 1928, when many of the brothers decided to move down to the Delta, then on to Jackson, which at the time held a vital blues scene in the region. Our mentor Chapman, particularly, made a successful solo debut on records in the years following under the name Bo Carter, eventually being recognized as one of the bona fide geniuses of country blues. Lonnie and their neighbor Walter stayed behind and continued to work together as a fiddle and singing guitarist duo, and the simplicity of their sound led them to new opportunities. In 1929, while the duo was rehearsing for a barn dance in Itabina, Mississippi, Lonnie heard Walter picking and singing something that he didn't recognize. Lonnie asked him, what kind of song is that? It was called Sitting on Top of the World. What stuck out was the rhythmic way that he sang the hook in the chorus, the phrasing of the line, Sitting on Top of the World. The duo was soon discovered by Ralph Lembo, a local talent scout for OK Records, and it's thought that he told the boys about an OK recording session that was happening in January of the next year. They showed up unannounced, and due to Lonnie's intricate and old-time-inspired fiddle playing, the duo stood out. Eight songs were recorded, two of which were marketed to white folks, while the remaining six were promoted to the African-American market. The big hitter from the session was Sitting on Top of the World, becoming a crossover hit and a multi-million seller. The producer needed a name to put with the songs, so the duo came up with The Mississippi Sheiks while they were still in the studio. When I When they recorded, Lonnie Chapman and Walter were the chorus sound, though they often were accompanied by Bo Carter on vocals and guitar, and occasionally Sam Chapman on guitar and fiddle, as well as Charlie McCoy on banjo and mandolin. The live version of the band was made up of different Jackson, Mississippi bluesmen and other brothers of the Chapman family, as well as their father, Henderson, and their mother, Eliza. Their primary source of income came from touring throughout the South and up to Chicago and New York, playing country juke joints, white dances, barbecues, and roadhouses. Their next two recording sessions churned out equally eclectic material, ranging from white-influenced waltzes and old-time folk tunes to pop, country blues, foxtrots, reels, rags, blues, and hokum numbers. They tracked the first song that blamed Prohibition for the Jake Lake epidemic, 
When people had both hand and leg paralysis after drinking improperly distilled bootleg liquor, the song was called Jake Lake Blues. They also covered two of the most popular musicians in the country at the time. Tight Like That by Chicago slide guitarist Tampa Red, and a tune by Jimmy Rogers called Yodeling Fiddling Blues. Throughout the Great Depression, the Mississippi Sheiks had been famous, selling well with the African-American market when there were still records of blues singers being released. Around 1933, the country's taste in music started changing to swing and big band, and by 1935, the recording contract expired. Most members continued solo careers and playing with other groups until around World War II, and some went back to farming. Bo Carter would go on to record more than 100 sides between 1928 and 1940. Sam Chapman worked as a farmer and a night watchman until he was rediscovered during the folk blues revival of the 1960s, getting a new recording and touring career. In 1972, Walter and Sam collaborated on an album for Rounder Records under the name The New Mississippi Sheiks and performed at the Smithsonian Festival of American Folklife in Washington, D.C. Lonnie passed away near their hometown around 1942, followed by Bo Carter in 1964 and Walter in 1975. Eventually, all the Chapman brothers died or retired from performing, leaving Sam to carry on and share the family's legacy until his death in 1983. Legendary bluesman Howling Wolf, who recorded Sitting on Top of the World in 1958, said, I'd known the Mississippi Sheiks. Yes, sir. Walked 10 miles to see them play. They was high time, making them good records. During the six years that they were active, the Mississippi Sheiks recorded more than 60 sides for labels including OK, Columbia, Paramount, and Bluebird, and are considered some of Mississippi's most important musicians. They were one of the best-selling black recording groups of the 1930s, and one of the first string bands to successfully fuse old-time and early country with blues. They left a massive impact on American popular music without much recognition, and their legacy is a stark reminder of the diverse and rich history African American music holds. Through the years, the song Sitting on Top of the World has become a standard of traditional American music. Folk, blues, country, bluegrass, and rock artists have covered the tune and amended lyrics like Big Bill Brunzi, Charlie Patton, Doc Watson, Bob Willis, Nat King Cole, Bill Monroe, Cream, Grateful Dead, John Lee Hooker, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan, and Jack White. It was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2008, and in 2018, it was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and artistically significant. Here's my take on the Mississippi Sheiks' Sitting on Top of the World, first recorded in 1930. It was all this summer, yeah, and all the fall. I was just trying to find my little, little normal. Now she's gone, yeah, and I don't worry. Cause I'm sitting on top of the world. In the spring, it was one summer day. It's when she left me, and she's gone to stay. But now she's gone, yet yeah, I don't worry. Cause 
as I'm sitting on top of the world. Don't you come here running, just holding out your hands. You can get me a woman, we can just kill a man. Now she's gone, Lord, and I don't worry, cause I'm sitting on top of the world. It's been days, I didn't know your name, why should I worry in a prayer in vain? Now she's gone, yet yeah, and I don't worry, I'm sitting on top of the world Going to the station down in the yard Get me a freight train, work some got hard. Now she's gone, yet yeah, I don't worry, cause I'm sitting on top of the world. Those lonesome days, they've gone by. Why should you beg me and say goodbye? Now she's gone. Yet and I don't worry Cause I'm sitting on top of the world Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing While the Chapman brothers were testing their musical chops at the end of World War I, Peter Seeger was born in New York City on May 3rd, 1919. His father Charles was a scholar and composer who studied at Harvard, founded ethnomusicology, and began teaching the first musicology class in the country in 1913 at UC Berkeley. Pete's mother, Constance, was a concert violinist who trained at the Paris Conservatory of Music and later became a teacher at the famous Juilliard School in New York City. When Pete was 18 months old, along with his two older brothers, the Seeger family traveled in a homemade camper that Charles spent nearly two years building, which looked more like a covered wagon. They hoped to share classical music of Beethoven and Bach with ordinary folks living in the countryside of the American South. However, the trip didn't go as planned, and they ended up spending the winter parked on some farmland in Pinehurst, North Carolina. They performed classical violin and pump organ music for their hosts, and the farmer's family asked if they could reciprocate with their own music. The generation's old banjo and fiddle tunes they heard were transformative for the Seekers, and forever changed Charles's outlook on the wide scope of the musical soul. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky little boxes. At home growing up, musical instruments could be found in nearly every room of the house, though his parents didn't force music on any of their children. Pete was well-educated, well-read, and gifted from a young age, considered bookish and withdrawn as a boy, though his brothers called him a constant show-off. He wasn't fond of the violin or classical instruments, and when he was given a ukulele at age eight, he started to sing pop hits of the 1920s and got his classmates to join him in song. 
it's hard times in the mill, my love, hard times in the mill. Over time, a wedge grew between Pete's parents until Charles discovered that Constance had created a secret bank account and they divorced when he was seven. Six years later, Charles got remarried to a concert pianist named Ruth Crawford, who was widely regarded as one of the most important composers of the 20th century. Ruth was an American folk music specialist and worked on arrangements for Carl Sandburg's hit folk songbook, American Songbag, released in 1927. She went on to have four children with Charles, Peggy, Mike, Barbara, and Penny, all of whom later became central folk singers during the 60s revival. And as you may remember from episode one of this show, Mike and Peggy Seeger were instrumental in discovering and bringing Elizabeth Cotton to the attention of the world. Charles wanted Pete to hear the music of the mountains from the people who knew how to make it. So in 1936, they took a trip back down to North Carolina to attend the Mountain Dance and Folk Festival just outside of Asheville. The event was organized by folklorist, lecturer, and preservationist Bascom Lamar Lunsford, whom Charles Seeger had worked with. It was in this immersive festival that 17-year-old Pete heard the five-string banjo for the first time and had a conversion experience of sorts. That evening, Bascom taught Pete his first frailing strums, and he spent much of the next several years mastering the instrument. Twelve years after, Pete published his first instruction manual, How to Play the Five-String Banjo, and invented the long-neck banjo, and was well on his way to bringing the instrument to a broad, city-based audience. Boys and girls all fell in line, but Charlie Wright had beat my time. After graduating agricultural boarding school, Pete's brothers convinced him to go to college, and later that year he enrolled at Harvard on a partial scholarship, aiming to get into journalism. He became a member of the American Student Union, made up of pacifists, socialists, and communists, who were all arguing about Hitler. The communists thought that the world should quarantine the aggressive. They were also against race or religious persecution, and were pro-union, which Pete agreed with. He joined the Young Communist League, and later became a card-carrying member of the United States Communist Party. After two years in school, Pete's interest in music and politics grew, while his grades suffered. He failed an exam, lost his scholarship, and dropped out. In the summer of 1939, he and a group of Harvard kids drove throughout the New York countryside, performing a traveling puppet theater show called the Vagabond Puppeteers. Pete played a cow, picking his banjo, to a delighted audience. In 1939, Pete took a job in Washington, D.C., assisting the famous musicologist Alan Lomax at the Archive of American Folk Song of the Library of Congress. Pete's job was to help Lomax sift through commercial race and hillbilly music and select recordings that best represented American folk music. Through his connection with Lomax, Pete befriended a labor militant named Aunt Molly Jackson and legendary folk singer Leadbelly. They encouraged Pete to perform, and Lomax got him his first opportunity at a Grapes of Wrath benefit show. There, he met Woody Guthrie, and they hit it off after discussing shared interests and discovered that Pete could fit his banjo into any of the songs that Woody sang. Woody let him tag along the rest of the year, and Pete learned more vernacular music and all about hitchhiking and hopping freights all over the country. Soon, along with Woody, Burl Ives, and a host of others, Pete was appearing as a regular performer on the CBS radio show, Back Where I Come From. Just to take it easy, just to take it slow, and I ain't gonna worry when the sirens blow. In the spring of 1941, at 21 years old, Pete co-founded the Almanac Singers, a topical group that promoted the union movement, 
racial and religious inclusion, the environment, and anti-war sentiments. Their album, Songs for John Doe, had sharply critical lyrics directed at President Roosevelt's peacetime draft, which required that all American men aged 21 to 45 register for the draft, then were later selected for service by a lottery system. A review in Time magazine denounced the Almanacs and accused them of being communist sympathizers. When Hitler broke the non-aggression pact and invaded the Soviet Union, the Communist Party and the Almanacs quickly and publicly changed its tune and wrote songs supporting the president, the draft, and the war. I dreamed the world had all agreed to put an end to war. Along with many others, Pete was drafted into the army in 1942. Just before being deployed, he met Toshi Aline Ota while performing at a square dance. Not long after, he had a leave of absence, and they got married. Their first child, Peter, was born in 1944, though he sadly died at six months old while Pete was overseas, and he never got to meet him. In the Army, stationed in Saipan, he was originally trained as an airplane mechanic, though later was put in charge of hospital entertainment and music workshops. While deployed, Pete envisioned a singing labor movement and when he returned from service, he and a few others established People's Songs, a nationwide organization designed to create, promote, and distribute songs of labor and the American people. When people asked him what he did in the war, he'd say, I strummed my banjo. As they held a line at Peekskill on that long September day, we will hold the line forever till the people have their way. In September of 1949, Pete was invited to perform a few songs at a benefit concert just outside of Peekskill, New York. The show was put on and headlined by African-American singer Paul Robeson, who was well known for his strong pro-trade union stance, civil rights activism, communist affiliations, and anti-colonialism beliefs. An angry mob clashed with attendees, and a line of people circled around Robeson to protect him during his performance. After the concert, the police allowed riots to ensue directed at both African-Americans and Jews attending, and they didn't spare the musicians. Pete's car was attacked with stones the size of baseballs, busting out all the windows, while Toshi and his three-year-old son Daniel were covered with shattered glass. That year, Pete officially left the Communist Party. Hudy had a hard and wonderful life. It's over now, but his songs are still very much alive. Good night, Irene. In 1950, Almanacs were reborn as a quartet called the Weavers, still performing for and singing about unions, just more covertly political and formally dressed. They had an overnight hit cover of Goodnight Irene, and in the recording dedicated the song to their friend and teacher Leadbelly a year after his death. It topped the charts for 13 weeks and was dubbed the number one song in 1950 by Billboard. In 1952, they were offered their own national TV show, However, because of Pete's previous affiliations with the Communist Party and the Red Scare now in full force, the sponsor pulled out. All the DJs stopped playing their songs, their bookings were all canceled, and even had their music erased from the Decca Records catalog. In 1955, they had a reunion concert at Carnegie Hall in front of a sold-out audience, defying the blacklist. So they booked a reunion tour. By 1958, Pete had been pursuing a solo career for half a decade, and obligations to the group began to hold him down. When management organized a commercial opportunity for a cigarette company, Pete resigned, saying, we don't need the money that much. Union stand together. 
Pete was subpoenaed to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, also known as HEWAC, in 1955. When asked about his political leanings and to name his associates, he refused to answer, and he didn't plead the fifth. Instead, he cited a violation of his First Amendment right, stating, I am proud that I have sung for Americans of every political persuasion, and I have never refused to sing for anybody because I disagreed with their political opinion. And I am proud of the fact that my songs seem to cut across and find perhaps a unifying thing, basic humanity. In March of 1957, he was charged with contempt of Congress, then convicted by a jury in 1961, and sentenced to 10 one-year terms in jail. However, the following year, an appeals court ruled that the indictment was flawed, and his conviction was overturned. The Fifth Amendment, in effect, is saying, you have no right to ask me this question. But I wanted to say you have no right to ask any American citizen this question. Turn, turn, there is a season. Turn, 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 and a time to every purpose under heaven. Despite escaping jail time, Pete was still blacklisted during the 1950s and early 1960s. He played the only gigs that he could, which the FBI couldn't anticipate, playing for the youth. He'd travel and perform at summer camps, elementary and high schools, the college circuit, and wherever they didn't ask him to sign a disclaimer limiting what he could say on stage. Pete was also busy in the studio, recording as many as five albums a year for Mo Ash's Folkways Records label. His anti-war songs, such as Where Have All the Flowers Gone and Turn, 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 became highly relevant at the height of the Cold War, when many people were demonstrating and vocalizing against nuclear weapons. Pete was instrumental in the founding of Newport Folk Festival, which celebrates traditional folk and blues musicians, as well as modern songwriters. Because Pete embodied the folk movement coming into America's collective consciousness, the festival was able to grow exponentially in the early 60s through the authentic artists that his credibility brought. He was integral in bringing Bob Dylan to the festival, who in 1965 had his now infamous going electric moment. Pete later said, I was more upset because the sound was distorted and we couldn't hear the words, which I wanted the audience to hear because I thought that they were important. Pete met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for the first time in 1957 at the Highlander Folk School and sang a version of an old gospel tune called We Shall Overcome, which became the anthem for the civil rights movement. It was also sung at the March on Washington, where Dr. King delivered the I Have a Dream speech, as well as the historic 50-mile walk from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. In 1969, Pete led 500,000 protesters in singing John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance at a Vietnam protest march, yelling over the crowd, Are you listening, Nixon? All of this brought Pete into the fold as a senior figure in the revival, helping raise the new wave of Woody's children, as he called them, to carry his torch. Had I a golden thread and needles so fine. Between 1965 and 1966, Pete created a regional, self-funded educational TV show called Rainbow Quest, produced with Toshi. Pete would perform songs and have conversations with big names and lesser-known talents, such as Johnny Cash, June Carter, Reverend Gary Davis, Mississippi John Hurt, Doc Watson, Elizabeth Cotton, Judy Collins, Donovan, Sonny Terry, and Brownie McGee, and many, many more. After 17 years on the blacklist, his first appearance on national television 
was on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour in 1967, performing a medley of war songs and waist-deep in the Big Muddy. It was censored by CBS at first, then eventually aired a year later. He's a major influence on American music, and he's written such songs as Where Have All the Flowers Gone, Turn, 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 and with Lee Hayes of the Weavers, the song If I Had a Hammer. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm happy to present on our show for the second time, Mr. Pete Seeger. Pete's popularity waned from mainstream America in the years following, though that wasn't why he did what he did anyways. Pete believed that the songs themselves could help people achieve necessary change, and dedicated himself to spreading them as far and as wide as he could. He continued to support numerous organizations that educate and raise that educate and raise awareness of environmental and social causes. He even wrote the first ever album dedicated entirely to songs about the environment, called God Bless the Grass. He founded a nonprofit to highlight and clean up pollution in the Hudson River. He didn't stop sharing his voice for political causes either. In 2009, along with his grandson and Bruce Springsteen, Pete sang This Land is Your Land during the finale of President Obama's inaugural concert. He was also part of the Solidarity March with Occupy Wall Street in 2011, as well as Farm Aid and many other big benefit concerts. Pete credited Toshi as being the support that helped make the rest of his life possible. While living in a trailer on some cheap land they bought in upstate New York, he and Toshi built a home with their own hands, a cabin without running water or electricity. Toshi gave Pete the space to chase his passions, which meant that she stayed home and raised their three children. She later said, If only he was out chasing girls instead of these causes, I'd have a reason to leave him. She passed away of natural causes in July of 2013 at the age of 91, and Pete followed in January of the next year. He was 94. Pete never used folk music for commercial reasons, strictly for its social importance. He was extremely patriotic, which may be the most misunderstood part about him. He once said, if you love your country, you'll find a way to speak out. President Obama called him America's tuning fork, and that he always invited us to sing along. For reminding us where we come from and showing us where we need to go, we will always be grateful to Pete Seeger. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1972, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1996. Pete was given the Kennedy Center's highest honors for being arguably the most influential folk artist in the United States in 1994. In 2000, he was named one of America's living legends by the Library of Congress. He won five Grammys, one at 89 years old, as well as the Lifetime Achievement Award in 1993. If I Had a Hammer was written by Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes while passing a slip of paper back and forth during a meeting, calling it the Hammer Song originally. The two had recently heard Take This Hammer from their friend Leadbelly and composed it as a rallying call for justice and equality. It was banned during a time when talks of peace was considered treason, and it had a resurgence as a new name, If I Had a Hammer, when Peter, Paul, and Mary played it during the March on Washington and ironically won a few Grammys with it in 1962. First recorded in 1957, here's my take on If I Had a Hammer from a 2018 live concert at Pump House Music Works just outside of Providence, Rhode Island, with a room full of people singing along, just as Pete would have had it. Thank you so much again, and to close it, I have 
probably one of the most important songs that I've learned, and a song that should be played forever, um, written by Pete Seeger. And if you know the words, please, please, please sing along. There's, there's no time like the present to be singing, and especially when a room full of people get together to sing a song, there's nothing like that.
Y'all sound so wonderful. I can't pay you, but if you want to come on tour, you can. Have you been enjoying the program? I've got big plans, but I need your support. There's a few ways you can help. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can rate the show. Or you can share with your community on social media and encourage your music-loving friends to listen. And if you have the means, you can donate $5 a month at patreon.com slash American Songcatcher, all one word. Thank you for listening. I was riding number nine Heading south from Caroline I heard that long Some whistle blow Widely considered country music's first superstar, Hiram King Williams, better known as Hank Williams, came into the world just four years after Pete Seeger on September 17, 1923, in Mount Olive, Alabama. Named after the biblical king Hiram of Tyre, Hank was born with a rare spinal condition called spina bifida occulta. At the time, not much was known about it, so he never received proper treatment, and he dealt with severe back pain his entire life. Hank's father was a logger, and the family moved around to different logging camps, following work around the south. At six, his father suffered what is thought to have been a brain aneurysm, and was admitted to a veterans administration hospital, where he remained for most of Hank and his sister's childhood. The musical world Hank grew up in started with the church. He said, My earliest memories were sitting on that organ stool by my mama and hollering. I must have been five or six years old, and louder than anyone else. His mother was a church organist, so Hank was surrounded by a chorus full of gospel singers from early on. Radio was also a significant inspiration. Like many young southern boys at the time, Hank loved Jimmy Rogers, and later adopted his yodeling technique. Blue. By 1931, the Great Depression was hitting the country hard. Practically a single parent, Hank's mother had to be resourceful, and moved the family to Georgiana, Alabama where she worked at a cannery. Hank found odd jobs like selling peanuts and newspapers and shining shoes to pitch in. When he was 10, Hank's mother sent him off for a year to live with his aunt, uncle, and cousin JC at a lumber camp about 50 miles away. He and JC soaked up old time and hillbilly music at their parties on Saturday nights where they'd find the not so hidden booze and take swigs until they got drunk as hoot owls on it, JC said. Then the next morning, they'd ask for forgiveness and sing gospel music. Oh, the blues come around. Lord, the blues come around every evening when the sun goes down. Now back in Georgiana, Hank started following around an African-American street artist and shoeshiner named Rufus Payne, who was also known as T-Tot. Hank would scrounge up 15 cents or whatever he could find to pay for guitar lessons, though it turned into a mentorship. Not only did Hank learn guitar, but T-Tot also passed on the blues singing that Hank would build on and become known for. Sadly, T-Tot passed away just a few years later, in 1939. Hank credited him as the only real music teacher that he ever had. In 1937, Hank's mother moved the family to Montgomery, where she ran a boarding house for travelers. It was the biggest city that Hank ever lived in, with a wealth of opportunity. He'd play on the street until the sun went down, and won a talent contest with his song, WPA Blues, first prize of $15. 
Hank's mother had him perform on the sidewalk outside of Montgomery's premier radio station, WSFA, until one of the producers noticed his talent. He was then invited to play on air when he was just 14, and became so popular that he hosted his own show, making $15 twice a week, dubbed The Singing Kid. The producers at WSFA urged Hank to take his career to the next level, so he formed a backing band called The Drifting Cowboys, mostly doing Ray Acuff covers. Charging 25 cents a show, his sister helped book gigs and tours around southern Alabama, and his mother drove the band and acted as manager. Hank dropped out of school to tour full-time, performing wherever they could. Dance halls, honky-tonks, and rowdy beer joints, where altercations with boyfriends of adoring girls would ensue. Hank carried a gun in his guitar case and broke many cheap guitars on people's heads. Booze was readily available at most shows, and 17-year-old Hank struggled to control his drinking. His back pain was a chronic source of self-medication, and with a low tolerance, after just one drink, he couldn't stop until he hit rock bottom. Tensions in the band grew as members changed, and Hank's mother got so fed up that she admitted him to a sanitarium, the first of many trips to get sober. Just before America joined World War II, the Drifting Cowboys fell apart when nearly all the musicians in Montgomery were drafted, besides Hank, due to his back condition. The WSFA radio station had also grown tired of his unreliable behavior, and in August of 1942, they let him go for habitual drunkenness. Hank ventured down to Texas, then Mexico with the Juan Lobo Rodeo, worsening his back trouble after falling off of a horse. He went on a musical hiatus and responded to an ad from a shipbuilding company in Portland, Oregon, that promised a free one-way ticket, training, free rent, and a steady wage for anyone willing to learn welding. He lasted a day or two, spending the rest of the time hitting local honky-tonks, and when he ran out of cash, asked his mother to wire money for a train ticket home. In November 1942, he moved to Mobile, Alabama to work on and off for another docking and shipbuilding company, which he left after a few years. After the war ended, Hank attempted to revive the original band without success, so he reformed with new members. His drinking worsened. He'd sloppily pack a suitcase and tell everyone he was off to Texas, only to sober up near the Alabama state line and either hitch a ride or wire for money to get back home. He joined a small medicine show, performing in the back of a flatbed trailer. At one of their stops in Banks, Alabama in 1943, Hank met Audrey Shepard, a recently separated mother of a two-year-old. He wasted no time and asked her to marry him almost immediately. A justice of the peace made it official outside of a Texaco station, though Audrey hadn't completed the required 60-day waiting period after her divorce, technically making the marriage illegal. Audrey started playing bass and singing with the band, much to the chagrin of the members who weren't fans of her singing. They moved into his mother's boarding house, and Audrey stepped in as manager, both of which strained the relationship with his mother. Yeah, my book has got a hole in it. Yeah, my book has got a hole in it. Hank's main goal was to be a songwriter, and after sending a few demos in 1946, Audrey got a meeting with Fred Rose of A Cuff Rose Publishing in Nashville. Fred signed him to write gospel songs initially, and after just a few months, he helped Hank get a record contract with New York's MGM label. A year after that meeting, Hank had his first hit, Moving On Over, which earned him a chance to play on the Louisiana Hayride radio program in Shreveport. Knowing his future in Montgomery was limited, Hank became a regular member of the cast. It turned out to be a good move, as the show was picked up by CBS, 
whose broadcast signal was powerful enough to reach much of the country. And suddenly, Hank was making waves. Move it on over, move it on over, move over, little dog, cause the big dog's moving in. Just a few months later, Hank recorded his first national hit, an old show tune called Love Sick Blues, that remained at the top of the Billboard charts for 16 weeks straight. With success came more drinking, and Hank's back pain only intensified his alcohol dependence, often showing up drunk to shows. Audrey filed for divorce, citing unruly drunkenness and uncontrollable violence, though they reconciled after being briefly separated and had it reversed. Ironically, Hank's most famous songs were about their volatile relationship, though his growing fame was thanks in part to Audrey's vigorous pursuit of his success early on. Hank Williams! Well, so Hank, we hope you're going to be around here with us for a long, long time, buddy. Well, it looks like I'll be doing just that, Red, and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, that's fine, just as we're all looking forward to that great Hank Williams hit. What else could it be but the lovesick blues? Hank's renditions of lovesick blues and its follow-up, Wedding Bells, convinced country music's premier radio show, The Grand Ole Opry, to hire him despite the rumors about his drinking. His debut at the Opry was in June of 1949, and the audience demanded an unprecedented six encores. He and Audrey moved to Nashville and had a son, Randall Hank Williams, better known as Hank Williams Jr. He spent most of 1949 sober, and soon the band was earning $1,000 a show, selling out venues across the country. They would drive three to 4,000 miles for a few gigs, and Hank would have two radios in the back seat so he could listen to two ball games at once. Hank also appeared on the Perry Como television show and started writing a number of religious songs and talking pieces under the pseudonym Luke the Drifter. For a living death is all that's left for men with broken hearts. Between 1950 and 1951, Hank was one of the most successful touring acts in country music, adding big hits such as Long Gone Lonesome Blues, Cold Cold Heart, Your Cheatin' Heart, Lost Highway, and Hey Good Lookin'. He was billed and arguably the largest medicine show in the country, sponsored and run by Hatacol, a popular vitamin drink that also had just enough alcohol to be sold in dry counties. Other acts featured were Bob Hope, Jack Benny, and Minnie Pearl, though Hank was the closing act that had everyone on their feet. Every one of his records charted in 1951. He had 24 top 10 singles, with six reaching number one, and he'd even signed a movie contract with MGM. Will make you weep. At the end of 1951, Hank was hunting on his farm in Tennessee when he tripped and fell and worsened his back injury. He had to get a spinal fusion operation at Vanderbilt University Hospital around Christmas, and the morphine and painkillers during recovery increased his addiction to pain medication. Audrey offered to fill in for him at a show in Washington, D.C., and Hank got angry, shooting out one of the windows as she was leaving. She did the show calling him on New Year's Eve and told him, I'll never live with you another day. He told her, if you don't come back to me, I won't live over a year. Five months later, after years of affairs on both ends, they finalized their divorce. She was awarded the house and custody of their child, as well as half of his future royalties. In the spring of 1952, not long after the divorce, Hank had a brief relationship with a dancer named Bobby Jett who became pregnant. He didn't plan to stay with her, but signed a private agreement that his mother would raise the baby, and then when they turned three, he'd assume custody. A few months later, while at the Opry, Hank met Billie Jean, Hank met Billie Jean Jones, 
a 19-year-old who had recently separated from her husband. Hank told her, If you ain't married, old Hank's gonna marry you. You're about the prettiest thing I ever saw. Billy tried to keep him sober and enforced a two-beer limit, saying, If he got more, I'd force milk and two raw eggs down him. Then I'd call my brothers to pack him off to the hospital. There's a tear in my beer Cause I'm crying for you, dear When he was sober, Hank was considered a transcendent performer. But when he drank, it was lackluster or non-existent. The Grand old Opry executives started to lose patience, one stating, It got to a point where he'd disappear for weeks at a time. Nobody knew where he was. In August of 1952, Hank was fired from the Opry for failing to show up, with the possibility that he could return if he got sober. Instead, Hank sank deeper into self-destructive behavior, missing his radio shows the next week, and lost that gig as well. Later that month, while on vacation in Alexander City, Alabama, where he met up with Bobby Jett, Hank was arrested for public drunkenness at a hotel. The next month, Hank was rehired with the Louisiana Hayride and moved to Shreveport with Billie Jean. Goodbye, Joe, me gotta go, me oh my The first show back, Hank was noticeably drunk and showed little interest in performing. In contrast, his studio hits kept coming, with Honky Tonk Blues peaking at number two and Jambalaya hitting number one, with several others making the top ten. In October of 1952, Hank and Billie Jean were married in private, then the next day performed for a sold-out crowd of 14,000 people in New Orleans, where she wore her bridal gown, they exchanged vows, and they cut their wedding cake. Again, Billie Jean's divorce from her previous marriage wasn't finalized, so the marriage wasn't legally bound. Over the next two months, Hank was in and out of a sanitarium to try and curb his drinking, though he was arrested again in Shreveport for public drunkenness. Why can't I free your doubtful mind and melt your cold, cold heart? By November, Hank's drinking and drug consumption had exacerbated his heart. While on tour in Oklahoma, he met a con man posing as a doctor who had been arrested for forgery and armed robbery named Toby Marshall. Marshall convinced Hank to make him his personal physician for $300 a week and overprescribed a series of fraudulent drugs which Hank took by the handful, including morphine, amphetamines, and chloral hydrate. His long-term substance abuse, along with this episode from Marshall, also took a toll on his physical appearance. He stopped eating, lost much of his hair, and his face started looking gaunt. Still, Hank went on with a short tour of Texas in December. Then he took a leave of absence from the hayride and returned to Montgomery. He visited old stomping grounds, saw family, and performed a few shows, one at his cousin's store, and one at a musician's union benefit concert. Her love like the leaves now have withered and gone. Just after Christmas, Hank was supposed to head north for a New Year's Eve show in Charleston, West Virginia, and a New Year's Day show in Canton, Ohio. However, an ice storm hit, and he couldn't fly to make the Charleston show on time. So he hired a 17-year-old named Charles Carr to drive him to the Canton show in his brand new powder blue 52 Cadillac. They stopped at the Andrew Johnson Hotel in Knoxville, Tennessee, where Hank felt ill, hiccuping and convulsing, and collapsed. Carr called a doctor who injected Hank with B6 and B12 vitamins and morphine, then declared him fit for travel. In the early hours of the next morning, Hank was still unwell and curled up in the back seat with a bottle of whiskey, saying all he wanted to do was sleep. After not hearing from Hank for two hours and noticing that the blanket covering him had fallen off, Carr pulled over in West Virginia at 5.30 a.m. He moved Hank's arm 
which felt cold and lifeless. By the time that he arrived at Oak Hill Hospital, Hank Williams was declared dead at 7 a.m. on January 1st, 1953. He was just 29 years old. Oh Lord, if you hear me, please hold my hand. Oh, please understand. I've just told Mama goodbye. Hank was buried in Montgomery, Alabama, three days later. His funeral drew a massive crowd, an estimated 20,000 people, including Audrey, Billie Jean, and Bobby Jett. There, country stars Red Foley, Roy Acuff, and others performed I Saw the Light, and Hank's I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive reached number one almost immediately after his death followed by a string of hit records throughout the year, released posthumously, and the sales of his songs skyrocketed. I'll never get out of this world alive. Following his death, both Audrey and Billie Jean performed as Mrs. Hank Williams and battled over his estate. Both women had invalid marriages to Hank, and Audrey paid Billie Jean $30,000 to relinquish the title of Hank Williams' widow and give up all rights to his estate and name. In 1979, the same year that Audrey passed away, a federal judge ruled that Billie Jean, who is now remarried, had a valid marriage to Hank, and that half of his future royalties belonged to her. Their daughter, Antha Belgette, was born just five days after Hank's death, and as planned, Hank's mother adopted the baby and raised her until she passed away. Then Antha went into foster care. She was adopted and wasn't told that she was Hank Williams' daughter until she was 21, when she was about to inherit $2,000 left to her. She was granted rights to his estate two years later and became an accomplished musician who performed under the name Jet Williams. I'd like to start off here with a song that I recorded here not long ago. I think it's one of the prettiest ones I've ever recorded. Boys, if you will, a little tune called The Lost Highway. Hank's friends considered him temperamental. However, his relationship with his fans ran deep. During a tour stop in Texas with Ernest Tubb, he stood knee-deep in snow for two hours signing autographs. He also helped many people out financially with the million dollars he made in his career, which is nearly $10 million in today's money. He once stopped to eat at a barbecue spot in a predominantly African-American town with his band. When he left, he dropped a money clip with about four or $500 in it. The owner ran out and said, Mr. Williams, you dropped this. Hank took the clip and handed the money right back and said, thank you. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night Praise the Lord, I saw the light During his brief 29 years, Hank established a template that would be used by many famous country and pop artists who followed his lead. Nearly 100 of his songs came into national prominence, and his writing inspired a new wave of earnest and raw emotion and lyrics. There are two museums in Alabama, the Hank Williams Museum in Montgomery, and the Hank Williams Boyhood Home in Georgiana that people can visit to see artifacts from his life. In April 2010, he was given the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Pulitzer Prize Committee, and Ken Burns featured Hank as the Hillbilly Shakespeare as part of his award-winning documentary series, Country Music, in 2019. He was among the first class of inductees to the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1961 and received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1987. Here's my rendition of Hank's classic, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. He intended for the words to be spoken, as he did with his side project, Luke the Drifter. The song was written about the sadness inspired by his relationship with wife, Audrey Shepard, and was first recorded in 1949. 
lonesome with her will Sounds too blue to fly The midnight train is winding low I'm so lonesome I could cry I've never seen the night so long When time goes crawling by The moon just went behind the clouds To hide its face and cry Did you ever see a robin weep when leaves begin to die? That means he's lost the will to live. I'm so lonesome I could cry. With the silence of the falling star lights up the purple sky. And as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome I could cry. I'm so lonesome I could cry. It's the worst that it's been since the last time it happened. It's happening again right in front of our eyes. In an area of eastern Kentucky that typifies rural Appalachia, Timothy Tyler Childers was born on June 21, 1991, in Lawrence County, Kentucky. Tyler has lived all of his life just on the road from Butcher Hollow, the home of Loretta Lynn, and the setting for the song and later the film, Coal Miner's Daughter. His mother was a nurse, and like Lynn, Tyler's father was a miner. Growing up, he said, I sat around a lot with my dad, around hunting clubs and outside of church and barbershops, listening to fellows older than me tell tall tales and flat-out lies. Given the stories he tells through his songs, he said, puckishly, I guess some of that rubbed off on me. Swing low chariot, swing low chariot. While neither of his parents were musicians per se, music was never all that far away. Tyler's father's truck had two cassettes in it a Ralph Stanley album, and a hee-haw gospel collection. He said, although you'll seldom hear it, my dad sings really well. When I was a kid, we'd go hunting and the old pickup truck had a radio in it. I have a lot of memories of coming home late at night and hearing my dad break out on song. At home, there was a closet with more cassettes and broader choices, ranging from traditional country like Hank Williams to crossover bands that brought country themes and ideas into pop and classic rock. He'd listen to Creedence Clearwater Revival, Alabama, and Leonard Skinner sometimes playing along, using a coat rack to stand in for a guitar and a microphone. Daddy work like a mule mining Pike County coal. The culture of music was always nearby as well. Whatever the region may have lacked in economic wealth, it gained in a rich cultural heritage, stretching back to the arrival of the Scotch-Irish, who first settled in the region. This is where Appalachian folk gave birth to bluegrass, barn dances, and ultimately, Nashville's Music Row and the Grand Ole Opry. U.S. Route 23, known as Kentucky's Country Music Highway, runs directly through it. Tyler says, straight as the crow flies, I grew up 20 minutes from 23. 
Tyler first learned to sing in the church choir, and his grandfather always wanted to learn guitar, but he never did, so he bought Tyler one at age five, and their relationship became even more special. His uncle, a preacher, taught him the basic chords, and by 13, Tyler was writing songs and singing them for friends, the first of which he claimed was a hardcore knockoff of Bob Dylan's Tangled Up in Blue. David Prince, who was his English teacher in ninth grade, recalls that he was just a wired little kid running around with a guitar and singing Johnny Cash. On a school trip to Louisville, says Prince, I remember we told him he couldn't have any more coffee, so he didn't stay up late drinking it and writing songs. When Tyler was 15, his grandfather passed away, and as a memento, he started listening more intently to the bluegrass music that Kentucky bred and that his papa loved. Please don't bury me down in the cold, cold ground. Tyler wanted to be a baseball player, though he spent more time on the bench than on the field. And that's where he sat, when one day an assistant coach was driving to the field in his truck and blaring John Prine's Please Don't Bury Me. Tyler was captivated, and the coach started bringing his guitar and teaching him John Prine's songs after practice. Several years later, Tyler would open for Prine on tour and joined him on stage for the Kentucky-based Paradise and coming full circle on Please Don't Bury Me. Back before these calloused hands and all this work. Tyler's always been drawn to the voices of the region, both in music and Kentucky writers, such as Silas House and Jesse Stewart. He would ask, why am I trying to find my voice? I'm blessed to be in a place that has its own. It's a voice that he knows well and is largely misunderstood. When he was in high school, Diane Sawyer profiled East Kentucky in a segment for the television news program, 2020. Mountain men. Only one out of 10 will get a college degree, which is less than half the national average. And for those who do not, little opportunity. Work at Walmart or fast food, in the drug trade or the mines. Tyler, and certainly many others, felt that her report was critical of Eastern Kentucky life in ways that only served to reflect Northern stereotypes, exploiting them for the purpose of the show. He never forgot it. In his songs, he doesn't shy away from the realities of life in the region. But he likewise doesn't shy away from the complexity of living in the coal fields and the hollows. The people of his songs didn't get their full voice heard in that 2020 report. Bottles and bibles litter the floor. Tyler attended Western Kentucky University for a semester, then transferred to community college before dropping out. He worked odd jobs like landscaping and flooring and played in bars and roadhouses around Lexington and Huntington, West Virginia. In 2011, Tyler released his first album, Bottles and Bibles, recorded in a friend's backyard studio with backing band The Food Stamps. It was followed by two EPs recorded at Red Barn Studio, a radio show in Lexington, Kentucky. He sold the recordings at gigs and in time built a following in the region, largely from touring. To make ends meet, he said he went wherever the rent was cheap and the gig was paying. He took a farm job that included room and board, and while working there, he met his future wife, Sonora May. My plan got rearranged. One day, Tyler had a chance encounter at a bingo hall just outside of Vestal County, Kentucky, and met Sturgill Simpson, who also hails from coal country. Older, perhaps wiser, and more experienced in the music industry, Sturgill talked about what country music could be and what it could do. He once told a reporter that in country music, Nobody is thinking about how to move people. Tyler gave Sturgill a demo recording and his email address, and he got in touch the next day, saying, call me when you're ready. Tyler did, 
inaugurating one of the most important professional relationships of his life. Well, my buckle makes impressions on the inside of her thigh. There are little feathered Indians where we tussle through the night. His second album, Purgatory, was produced by Sturgill and Dave Ferguson, who was Johnny Cash's engineer. After recording, Sturgill said, This might do something. You might be able to make a land payment. You'll never see the land, but it'll be there. The album quickly rose to number 28 on the Billboard charts and was chosen by NPR as one of the best albums of 2017. Then, Margot Price tapped him to open for two of her shows at the Ryman Auditorium, where he received his first standing ovation. As the audience rose, Tyler simply stared out at them, clutching his guitar. The following year, he won Emerging Artist of the Year at the 2018 Americana Music Honors and Awards. His acceptance speech criticized the Americana label, saying, As a man who identifies as a country music singer, I feel Americana ain't no part of nothing and is a distraction from the issues that we're facing on a bigger level as country music singers. It kind of feels like purgatory. Get me higher than the grocery bill Take my troubles to the high wall Throw them in the river and get your fill Tyler writes songs that sit in contrast to the hayseeds of the Beverly Hillbillies or Hee Haw. They're human, modern, and varied. He said that there are different pockets of the rural U.S., and each one of those has their own color, their own language, the things that they're worried about. He writes about them, the miners, the fox hunters, the barflies, and the mill workers. In his song Country Squire, Tyler tells the story of a trailer that he bought on Craigslist, intending to use it as a home until intending to use it as a home until he and his wife could build something more permanent. By being honest and trying to share my life experience, it can hopefully bridge a gap between that experience and the audience, he says. Tell me that you love me, lovely Lady May. His songs Lady May and All Yorn, which received a Grammy nomination in 2019 for Best Country Solo Performance, were written for his wife, Sonora, a talented painter, stained glass artist, writer and singer in her own right. Tyler credits her for elevating his life, adding, Every now and then I'll slip up, and she'll say, You're still a dummy, so it's a good thing you found me. The couple is dedicated to laying roots in Estill County, Kentucky, where they're focusing on helping their home region. When he's, ho- when he's on tour, he counts his blessings, stating, I know artists who are out there on the road, and they don't have that kind of support back home. I'm extremely blessed. Musically, Tyler draws from a large palette, stemming from those cassette tapes he found in his father's closet as a child. His latest release continues the theme. While on tour, Tyler's fiddle player would bring two violins, though one would often go missing. Squirreled away, he'd find Tyler with it somewhere, learning the tunes and techniques of old-time fiddling. Despite only playing that instrument for less than a year, Tyler's latest release is a collection of mostly old-time and bluegrass fiddle tunes. Titled Long Violent History, the album ends with the title track, the only vocal song included, which meets the discord of the current cultural moment head-on. He sings, Could you imagine just constantly worrying, kicking and fighting, begging to breathe? In a video released to accompany the album, he sits alone in a chair, discussing his intention, which perhaps he expects is likely to be misunderstood. What I believe to be one of the biggest obstacles in pinpointing the cause of this is our inability to empathize with another individual or group's plight. In the midst of our own daily struggles, it's often hard to share an understanding for what another person might be going through. On October 3rd, 2020, 
the album reached number one on Billboard's Americana Folk Chart. Here's my take on Rock, Salt, and Nails, inspired by Tyler's version, originally written by Utah Phillips and first released in 1961. Way down in the hollow Where the water runs cold Was their first listen To the lies that you told Now I lie on my bed When I see your sweet face in the past I remember Time cannot erase And that letter you wrote me Was written in shame You know your conscience Still echoes my name Nights are so long, Lord, the sorrow runs deep, and nothing is worse than a night without sleep. And I walk out alone when I look at the sky, it's too empty to see. Too lonesome to cry So if you ladies were blackbirds If you ladies were thrushes I lie there for hours In the chilly cold marshes If you ladies were squirrels With high bushy tails Fill up my shotgun with a rock salt and nails. Some people say a man is made out of mud. Poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load six That'll do it for episode six. Do me a favor and find American Songcatcher on Instagram at American Songcatcher, all one word, so that we can connect on there. Today's Shine a Light goes out to the folks at History of Country Music on Instagram. 
This group of folks is drawing from an incredibly deep record collection that tracks the history of country music from pre-1920s through old-time country blues, western swing, hillbilly, bluegrass, and honky-tonk. Each post shares a well-informed story and photos of the artists, and you can swipe right to hear clips from their records played on a beautiful Audiotronics turntable. Follow History of Country Music, all one word, for frequent posts. You won't regret it. This episode, as always, was made possible by the community on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a direct supporter of the show, please visit patreon.com slash American Songcatcher. Also by Paco's Coffee, a small batch roastery based out of Jacksonville Beach, Florida, who buys their beans from farmers and co-ops who are trying to improve their land, empower their employees, and sustainably grow and harvest coffee. Go to pacoscoffee.com now and get yours delivered. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian Folkways for all of their crucial work in preserving the legacy of these artists and these songs, the Library of Congress's complete national recording registry. Our intro song is Payday by Mississippi John Hurt from the Today album, and our outro song is 16 Tons, performed by Tennessee Ernie Ford, originally written by Merle Travis. This episode was produced, researched, recorded, and distributed by myself, Nicholas Edward Williams, with writing help from Glenn C. Herbert. And in the words of Hank Williams, you got to have smelled a lot of manure before you can sing like a hillbilly. See you next time on American Songcatcher. I owe my soul to the company store.